Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, college football writer with the Associated Press. My guest this week is Ivan Mizell, one of the very best college football writers and reporters in the business, formerly at ESPN. Ivan is about to take on a new venture. We'll talk to him a little bit about that, but mostly we are talking playoff this week. I wanted to bring Ivan on to give a little historical perspective to just how dramatic a change college football has undertaken in the past couple of decades as compared to where the sport was for previous decades upon decades. We've got a plan in place for a 12-team playoff. How did it come together? Who benefits? How soon can it be implemented? We'll cover all of that with Ivan and more. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on appodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, just about anywhere you'd like to get your podcast. If you like what you hear, give us a good review and rating. It helps college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. If you'd like to email the show, send questions and comments to aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. That is aptop25mailbag, the digits 25, at gmail.com. And away we go. Joining me this week on the show is the the great Ivan Mizell. Ivan, uh, thanks so much for joining me today to talk about the playoff and where we have come and where we are going with all this. Uh, but before I do... You got a couple other things going on. One we're going to talk about at the end. One we're going to talk about at the beginning. And the first thing I want to talk about at the beginning is, you know, you've been um, laying low for a little while after your time at ESPN came to an end. But soon we will be able to read your wonderful work and see you uh, a lot more often. So where and when will we start to be able to get our daily dose of uh, of Ivan? Ralph, you're such a sweet talker. Uh, <laughs> I. Uh, I have taken a job with a new venture, a new website that is going live in August, August 15th. The name of the site is on3.com, O-N, the number three, dot com. Uh, you know, as anyone who has ever played in a team sport, you know, what you say when you break a huddle or you're in practice at the end of the day, on three, and then one, two, three, and whatever that magic phrase is. So uh, that's uh, it, the, the guys behind the site are uh, Shannon Terry, uh, you know, who in his team that developed Rivals.com and sold it and then developed 247sports.com and sold it. So I feel confident that they understand how to make a sport college sports site on the internet work and uh, they have decided they want to do uh, a site that will do not only what those sites have done so well, which is focus on recruiting and on uh, team coverage, but also have uh, premium content uh, delivered by staff of very good writers. So we are slowly staffing up uh, you know, I don't know that we will be fully staffed in August, but we will have uh, we'll have enough out there to get to get going. And as we 
get our feet under us and, and get going. We'll, we'll be doing podcasts. Uh, we hope to be doing video, you know, and I'm excited. It, it, it's a, it's a, uh, a great opportunity. And, and as you say, I, I really just wanted to, uh, you know, when I left ESPN, I had to decide, do I want to still do this? And I decided, especially with all the changes coming to college sports, that I wanted to still be relevant and, and be able to describe uh, a sport in, in what will be a uh, interesting transition. Well, let's uh let's get right into that interesting transition. So an interesting transition for you and for the sport of college football which you have uh covered for a a long long time. Um yes. Well, but but well, I I meant that in a good way, Ivan. Um yeah. And the reason why one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you about it is because this to a certain degree, I need to put this into historical perspective. We we got news last week that this playoff is probably going to expand to 12. That wasn't shocking news. I think what was a little surprising is that they played all their cards in one day ahead of these meetings uh, later this week in Chicago and didn't just come up with like, because often in college football or in college sports in general, when change comes, you get these little bits and pieces of information and there's these incremental steps that lead to a really big change, almost to the point where you don't realize a big change just happened because it took so long and there were so many incremental steps to get there. Whereas last right. week, it was very much like, hey, here's what we're doing and here's all the details and we're just going to give it all to you right here and... Listen, there could be some tweaks along along the edges here, but I think we got a pretty good idea of where this is going. I'm 51. You are a little older than I am. We have been around like following this sport for a long time to the point where there was a point when you couldn't even say the word playoff. But even going back farther than that, th this sport has always been in some ways you know, sort of defined by it, the oddness of like, well, why don't you just play the top two teams? Oh, well, we can't do that because one of them's got to go to California to play and the other one's got to go to Miami to play. <laughs> well, why can't? Well, why do they have to do that? Because, well, that's kind of the way it goes in this sport. So I'm yeah. wondering if, like, you know, if you can sort of put in perspective as someone who has known and loved this for such a long time, how dramatic this change is and really also how quickly it came relative to the history of the sport. Well, I, I, this change, I think the dramatic shift from four teams to 12, you know, and people have described this as inevitable, that, that once you started a playoff, you know, we started with two teams and then we went to four. And the minute that they signed the, the 12-year deal for four, everybody said, well, next they'll go to six or eight. Uh, and, and obviously they, uh, they didn't. They, they skipped over those. And I think they did it uh, because they recognized they've got a problem. People, uh, a lot of fans had become disengaged or were becoming disengaged from the sport because it was the same group making it to the to the playoff every year you know a, a group of five or six teams have gotten the the bulk and, and we've all seen those numbers if you're listening to this podcast but you know i don't have to repeat them i think 12 is is a big change as you describe and uh, for a couple of reasons uh, one the obvious that it adds two more rounds to the playoff 
two, I think it's going to uh, heighten the demise of the greater bowl system as we know it, which has uh, struggled in recent years not only to sell tickets but to uh, have the best players play in them. Uh, you know, by to me, if you go to 12 teams, then that's great in terms of of keeping fans engaged through the month of November across the country. Because as the as the commissioner said last week, we'll have 25 to 30 teams coming down the stretch in contention. Uh, but for the those teams 13 through 30 that don't make the playoff, and then the other. 50 teams that would be eligible for a bowl game. The best players are, are, if they are draft eligible, we've seen they now understand or have decided that they don't, they shouldn't play in a bowl game, that it may hurt them uh, and their chances of being drafted. Uh, so bowl games, I think, will live even longer in the shadow or in, in, a, in an even longer shadow. Mm-hmm. Uh, of the playoffs and whether they can survive in that shadow. Uh, you know, they are very effective programming for ESPN and, you know, count me among the thousands, if not millions of college football fans who loves the fact that for three weeks, you, all you have to do to watch a game is turn on the television, Right. you know, every single day. It, it's just great fun. But I wonder how long that lasts when all of our attention will now begin to be focused or even more of that attention will be will be focused on a larger playoff. So I, I think bowls, uh, you know, I fear for what will happen to them. Okay, so before we start de- delving into more of consequences looking forward where there might be some some debate here on where things are going i do want to hit on again i want to look i want you to look back a little bit i want to i want to tap into tap into no 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 that's okay that's okay um i don't follow instructions very well this is free-flowing this is (laughs) this format um and and i want it to be more of a conversation than than an interview anyway so but i i I can't help but wonder this because i was thinking about this myself when was the first year that you can remember covering or even watching this sport that you thought oh man we need a playoff where there was playoff conversation where there was coaches lobbying for playoffs I mean listen I mean I can go back in the archives I'm a little too young for it and see uh what was it Duffy Darty and Joe Paterno yep. back in the 60s and 70s you know lobbying for playoffs but I'm just wondering from your perspective which year again either either as a fan or as a as a as a writer did you was there clearly like this groundswell of talk of why don't they do this differently? Why don't we have teams? Why don't we have something that looks like a playoff? Because that's the way they do it in every other sport. I think the first I began to open toward the fact that a playoff could be a possibility when NBC moved Miami and. Penn State to prime time, you know, after the 86 season, the 87 Fiesta Bowl. And they saw the, you know, I think the sport saw the groundswell of interest in that game. And that began to plant the seed. The powers that be were not interested in it. 
but as we then had the split national champions in 1990 and again in 1991, you know, that kicked the bowl alliance or bowl coalition, whichever one came first into, uh, you know, that began to gestate. I never had a problem with two national champions never bothered me. Uh, because I felt like, you know, the sport has gotten along just fine with having two national champions. It means, you know, that two bookstores get to sell T-shirts and the ring company gets to sell twice as many rings. And otherwise, who cares, you know? Uh, but clearly, you know, 90 and 91 set into motion the, the coalition and the bowl alliance and and then we got, you know, the BCS. So uh, I, I think it, to me, all, to me, everything in modern college football dates from the Supreme Court decision in 1984 that gave the TV rights to the schools and began to uh, make more important when and how you appeared on television. And I think that this was just another offshoot of that, you know, that, from that Supreme Court decision, we got realignment because the schools assigned their rights to the conferences. The conferences then wanted bigger footprints so they could get more money from the networks, and, and off we went. And I think the playoff is just an offshoot of that. I, I never took the talk seriously because I never thought they would do it. But then they, I think the public got upset enough that the commissioners uh, recognized they could rest control away from the bowls of the postseason because when I started covering in the eighties, the bowls, you know, the commissioners, uh, kowtowed to the bowls. And then, you know, once they began to get them, once the money began to flow to them, they figured out, well, actually the bowls need to kowtow to us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and, and off we went. And I'll stop now because a conversation would involve two people talking. <laughs> well, you were covering this at the time. Uh, yeah. You know, Mike Slive was the first one of the commissioners to put forth. So and just, just to give people an idea of the timeline. So, again, we went decades and decades and decades before the Bowl Coalition. Right. The, that, that Supreme Court decision in the 80s, Bowl Coalition Alliance begat the BCS in the late 90s. And then, you know, 16 years later, that was no good anymore. But even before that, in 2008, you know, Mike Slive was fighting for what they would call a plus one, right? Because you couldn't even use the word playoff. Um, Right. And it was going to be plus one was, you know, we're going to have the BCS, but then we're just going to add one more game on top of it uh, to determine a true, really true champion. Right. Yeah. So so it's just it's just amazing to me that in 2008 we went from well how about a plus 1 no that gets shot down uh we're not even calling it a playoff and now we're 13 years later and we have gotten and we have and we have 13 and we now will have 12 teams playing in a playoff and I also wonder like like I've always kind of felt like the playoff would change when the people changed I don't think it's a coincidence here, and I'm wondering what you think, that we have a lot of new people in the room making these decisions. You know, Mike Slive is dearly departed. Uh, John Swafford has retired. John uh, Jim Delaney has retired. 
Um, right. You know, Pac-12 has had new leadership, you know, a couple of times over now. I, I almost feel like it, because there are new people looking at this with different ways of looking at it and maybe different allegiances to tradition, um, that's part of the reason why we have moved so fast. That's a great point. And, and to, and I would add to that based on what you said at the top of the show. Uh, I think the changes that were announced Thursday, the proposal of changes that were announced Thursday are exactly what we're going to see happen. And the reason I say that is if you look at the makeup of the committee that made the changes, and it was, uh, Greg Sankey, of the SEC, Bob Bowlesby of the Big 12, Craig Thompson of the Mountain West, and Jack Swarbrick at Notre Dame. Those are the the four longest-serving members of of, mm, the, good point. of the commissioners of of the playoff group of the of the playoff bosses. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know, Ralph, everybody else is so new. What are they going to come in and say? No, we need to do this. Uh, of course not. You know. I, these guys are the ones that know how know best how everything works, and they were appointed to come up with a better plan. And there's nobody else that'll be in that room in Chicago this week that, you know, to my mind, has enough ballast or, or or stature to challenge that you know that proposal. So, I, I, to me, I think that it's a slam dunk. You know, the new blood in the room is still going to defer to those guys. And it, it, it stands to reason, you know, in my mind, that, that, that that's what we'll end up with. And also, um, listen, if you could get the SEC and Notre Dame to agree on something, that means yeah. you probably checked a lot of the boxes. And, and plus the group of a group of five representative in Craig Thompson. And, you know, you throw in the Big 12, which has the smallest conference. So I also think you had... A, uh, a a foursome there that had different, all with very different priorities, and yeah. that they came very to an agree point. that they came to an agreement would mean that well, I mean, it seems to work for a lot of people involved. You know, my my feeling, of course, if if, if you can get the SEC and Notre Dame to agree on anything, that goes a long way in college football, right? That's a pretty two pretty powerful entities there. And this is you know once again put a spotlight on Notre Dame's unique stature in, in college football in general and college athletics in particular. You know, they uh, exceeded, uh, you know, they, they decided to forego access to the top four seeds, uh, you know, which means that if they are ever in the playoff, they will be playing an extra game. Uh, because they are not in a conference and the top four seeds will all be conference champions. And it will, it could potentially make for some very awkward, uh, questions for Bill Hancock or whoever the next Bill Han- Hancock is. You know, as our friend, uh, Mark Blouchin said to me, what, what happens when Notre Dame is, is 12 and 0 and seeded fifth and USC is, 11 and 1 having lost to Notre Dame and is seated third because they would be one of the four highest seated conference champions. You know, you know who, how's that going to go over? And, uh, you know, so Notre Dame gave up something there, but on the other hand, 
I think I read somebody's story, and I think it was Pete Sampson at The Athletic, I'm not sure, who pointed out that in the last, uh, you know, that Notre Dame would have made the playoff many more times over, you know, I think five or six times over the last decade if this system were in effect. So essentially Swarbrick is saying, okay, no, we're not going to join. We're not going to stay in the ACC. But if we can get a playoff check every other year, we'll be fine. Which yeah, I thought was an interesting, you know, place to be. Yeah, it was an interesting trade-off, and he had mentioned this idea of well, because we don't play that conference championship game, that's uh, our first playoff game would be the equivalent of that to a certain degree. Whatever, whoever's going to get those first four top seeds will have played that thirteenth game. So this is our compromise. But yeah, I mean so that that's a that's a good way to justify it, but I believe you're right. What you're trading is access to the playoff over improving your ability to win it. Now maybe that's also if you shot up Jack and some other people at Notre Dame with Truth Serum, it's it's the revelation that listen, the the nature of this beast right now in college football doesn't necessarily is going to make it really hard for us to win one of these, right? We 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 don't have access to the same players and the and the amount ah. of players as we as as some of these you know these powerhouse Southern schools, and right. So the reality is we're probably not going to win it very often uh, until you know the weather becomes better in indiana and all of a sudden you know in the global warming global yeah warming, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, go 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 global warming so why not just so so let the destination be simply making the playoff and the, the other part of that too ivan i think is the next iteration of this when we do get the 12 teams i think is also an attempt to make the playoff the destination right just getting right. in becomes the destination and becomes a good season. So now 12 teams yes. can say, and listen, for Alabama or Ohio State, they'll always be the the extra pressure of winning it all. But for a lot of schools, simply getting in will be good enough. Which is how we look at March Madness. And, right. you know, for some reason we've never viewed uh, I guess we used to view football that way when all you had to do was make a bowl game. But, you know, the bowl game uh, experience and the bowl game honor has kind of withered away with, you know, A, the ad, you know, the onset of the playoff and B, the dilution of, 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 of the bowl as an honor, you know, that you had to play well enough to make a bowl. Now you just have to, you know, be a 500 team to make a bowl. Yeah, the other point I would make about Notre Dame, Ralph, is that uh, okay, so they if if Jack Swarbrick is right and and that uh, round of sixteen game, if we can call the five through twelve games that uh, gets you into the quarters, and that's your equivalent of his conference championship game. Well, from then on, everything's neutral site. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I don't know that we can equal, I don't know that we can say that a one versus eight game will equal what we have now. But what we've seen now is that the seedings really don't have that much uh, effect on outcomes. 
you know, we've seen the four seed win. We've seen the three seed win. And it took many years for the one seed to win. And uh, so I, I think, you know, you you get to play one game in order to then get to neutral sites, and that's probably not a bad trade-off either. Do you, when you start looking at the neutral sites and bowls, uh, neutral sites and home games, uh, because that was the other thing that I still think when I look at this this format that still has a little bit of a to-be-determined feel for it. You know, you can't flip this system early by 2023 if they were to. And I, there's a whole whole bunch of stuff that goes into that that we'll talk about. But if you wanted to flip this system early, you'd have to still, I think, incorporate the bowls because you got a whole bunch of contracts with these bowls. But I do sure. wonder if beyond 2025, when those contracts end, there is, I mean, listen, I've already talked to some ADs who say, like, I, I kind of would like that home game. In fact, I would like two of them. Yes, please, I will take a home game as well. <laughs> and, and I will be happy to do it in January uh, because it's not that cold here in January, to give you a hint of, of where I was talking to, an, you know, where yeah. this AD was from. South Bend. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, <laughs> so uh, my, I guess my question is, you mentioned the bowls, the greater bowl system taking a hit. Do you think there's a possibility that they could marginalize the bowls even more and eventually put these games on campus? And the and the big question about all of that is, uh, what goes on with the Rose Bowl? Yes. Because <laughs> that's well, the only that's one of these that really matters. Out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, I do remember, I think it was Bob Bowlesby, but I'm not positive. Somebody on the call last Thursday said, you know, this will allow college football to reclaim January 1st. And it is, so if you have the quarterfinals on January 1st every year, uh, and those are the big four games of, of the day, are, are we, is the Rose Bowl going to say, all you got to do is give us a quarterfinal every year and we're happy? Mm-hmm. You know, do they say that? Do they want to retain some sort of tie to the Big Ten, Pac-12, you know, historic matchup? Um, are, you know, are they going to want to have a semifinal? And if they have a semifinal and it's not on January 1st, you know, what happens to the Rose Parade? You know, I mean, there's a lot of questions there uh, that we just don't know the answers to yet. But uh, I think... Uh, certainly the, the playoff, I think if they want to reclaim January 1st, I think they would be foolish to not use the bowls because the bowls are January 1st and historically have been. Uh, you know, if we're given five, if we're rewarding seeds five through eight with a home game and the reward for seeds one through four is an off week, but they don't get a home game. I'd kind of like to see, I, I would think that one through four should get a greater reward than just an off week. I think they, you know, just in terms of the competitive equity on the field, I'd like to see one through four get an off week and a home game. But then you lose that bowl presence on January 1st, if that's how you're going to want to play this. Uh, so... I, I'm willing, you know, 
that's a compromise I understand. I just don't think that one through four are getting the full benefit of being seated one through four. Yeah, and I think that's the that that piece of this is I think the one thing that it, well one of the couple of things that is very much listed under uh, TBD. Uh, we'll see how this thing works out, and there there are probably going to be some conversations about this. So I want to take a quick break, Ivan. Uh, Ivan Mizell, soon to be on 3.com, right? Soon to, is I, I got that right, on 3.com. Soon that to be is the, correct. Soon to be the senior writer and grand poobah um, yes. of on 3.com. That is com. my official title. Well, no, I'm sorry. That's not the official title. <laughs> the official title is vice president of editorial, but I like grand poobah, and I'll see if I can get my business cards to say that. We're going to talk a little more playoff, but I want to take a quick break here in the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. We're going to talk to Ivan about a couple of other things, including a book he is working on, or is I think he's done working on, and now is just doing the prep work to get it out there. That is uh, not about college football, but very special to him. But we will talk about all of that right after this. You're listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast with your host, Ralph Russo, the Associated Press College Football Writer. If you have any questions for our host or any of our guests, email the show at aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. And to get the rest of your football fix, also take a listen to the AP Pro Football Podcast with host Rob Motti, writer and sports radio personality as he tackles all the important news on and off the field of the National Football League and provide you with insider exclusives and in-depth analysis along with insightful interviews with Hall of Famers, current players, coaches, and executives. Rob will take you around the league, break down the biggest games, and keep you in the know only the way AP can. Like, subscribe, and comment wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. When we're back with Ivan Mizell from On3.com, the great Ivan Mizell. Uh, thanks so much again for joining me today, Ivan. Let's uh, finish up the playoff talk. And there's a lot of ways you can go on this, on like what's next. And are you excited for? Before I I ask you about the one other big piece of like the unknown here, I I want to ask you: Are you excited for this? Because I found myself looking at like a lot of us did. We we went back and okay, what would this look like last year, the year before, right. the year before that? Um, those were everywhere, and I and I did one of those myself, and I found myself thinking, like, you know, I know Alabama is still going to win this thing <laughs> most years. <laughs> and just to be very clear, listeners, like, the, the playoff did not expand to get more champions. The playoff expanded to produce more playoff teams. This is not right. a so, – this is not a way to – keep Alab to to some way change the 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 end of the story this is a way to change the beginning of the story and what i found when i was looking at it is you know these first round matchups are pretty good and then you get into the quarters and you're like well okay now the big boys the super teams that have developed in college football over the last few years the alabamas and ohio states now they're involved and maybe those matchups aren't quite going to be as there's going to be a few more blow uh, blowouts in those matchups but if i get a good first round and a pretty good quarterfinal round and then we'll see what happens in the semis and then we'll get to like i just feel like i i found myself looking at this thinking 
oh, this could be cool. This could be very, I know that there are drawbacks as far as regular season and all that stuff, but I think this could be cool. I agree. I, you know, I think it will give football a little bit of that March madness feel, you know, when, uh, I, I mean, I covered basketball for a long time. I haven't covered it in 20 years, but, uh, you know, Thursday and Friday of the, uh, of the first week of the tournament were my two favorite days of the year to work because there was just so much excitement and so much going on and so much buildup and, and teams were so happy to be in the tournament. And I think we'll get a taste of that in college football. You know, competitively, I agree with you. You know, I don't think it, the only question I have is, you know, we've both seen playoff games where they've been off for three weeks and they spend the first half of not the entire first quarter, the first half of the first quarter, if not the entire first quarter, scraping off the rust of not playing for three weeks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you get a, you know, if you get a seven seed in there that, you know, got some momentum, you know, beat the number 10 team and they come in with some rhythm and they're humming and, and number two has been off for three weeks. Then what happens when seven jumps on top, you know, and, uh, which again may not reward the number two team, as I was saying a couple minutes ago, but I think that could be interesting. And, um, you know, we're all going to be very curious. We'll all, we'll all have our eyes out for, for how this is actually going to play out in that regard. Yeah. I, again, ultimately I think it's going to be pretty fun. Uh, now the big, the biggest question, the biggest, what if is it's going to be fun, but when, when, when is this going yeah. to happen? Because there's a tricky dynamic here and depending on who you, who you talk to behind the scenes, you get some different answers. Um, this thing is not flipping for free. Right? <laughs> like this, they have a right. chance to triple the revenue here. And I don't think out of the goodness of their hearts, they're just going to, because t- ESPN will gladly take a bigger format within the, the, the length of the rest of the contract. There are five years left on the current uh, deal with ESPN. And if the, the folks at the playoffs said, hey, listen, we're going to give you a whole bunch more playoff games and you don't have to give us a dime. ESPN <laughs> would be would be really happy to accommodate that. But that is not going to happen. They're not doing this to not generate more You're revenue. You're willing to stake out that position, are you? I am yeah. willing to stake out that position. But then you can't, they can't, uh, the CFP cannot negotiate with anybody else until the contract with ESPN is up. So you're also not getting full value without taking this thing to market and getting a few competitors in there. So I don't know how much you've thought about it. I've thought about it a fair amount. Like, can you sit on this thing for five years and not change it until the 2026 season? There could be something creative to be done here with it. Maybe ESPN just makes them an offer they can't refuse. But I do wonder, ESPN and the CFP negotiations are going to be the key to to whether this thing flips sooner or later. And I I wonder what your thoughts are, especially as someone who worked at ESPN. Well, I, I have to think, Ralph, and, you know, that nothing occurs in a vacuum. So, uh, you know, 
have to believe that when this announcement was made Thursday, it was not the first time ESPN had heard about it, and that they, uh, you know, they are down the road in discussing how this would work. You know, I, I'm, I don't know the exact details, uh, you know, um, you know, of ESPN's right of first refusal and exclusive negotiating period, but you know, those they have very smart people in Bristol who negotiate those deals, so I, I'm sure that's part of this and I'm sure they've discussed it and uh, you know I, I I would think this bodes well for ESPN to continue covering it because if they start out for a couple of years and do it you know why wouldn't they go ahead and extend the contract uh, for a lot more money and and keep going you know so uh, I tend to think that that's what's happened, but I, you know, that's just to me, it's just common sense. I don't have any evidence that says that. Listen, I, I again, shocking. I will take this position, but you know, people <laughs> who who are paying for things generally don't want to pay as much as they possibly can pay, right? They generally like yeah. ESPN's got a lot of money, and I'm sure ESPN will make a fine offer. But if ESPN is not under the gun to because it has no competition to make the the biggest offer possible, they they will probably you know hold back a little bit of bucks. So uh, again, I I think we're going to see this thing sooner rather than later. But how we get there, I think there's going to have to be some creativity involved in between uh, ESPN and the college football playoff um, as far as what this looks like and how the how the financials work. Uh, because one way or the other, either either one side is going to say, hey, we've left money on the table or the other side is going to say um, we're not giving up this certain leverage that we get of being exclusive. And, and again, business people tend not to th- th- you don't make all this money by giving up leverage. And and I think that's where we are at this point and, and how quickly we can get into uh, into a new playoff format. It, again, we're very much looking forward to it, but it might be a few years off. It's definitely going to be a couple of years off, and it might be even farther than that if they can't get the financials yep. straight. Uh, no, I think you're right. Yeah. L- let me let me throw this one last piece at you, Ivan. Okay. And that is, at, at what point maybe did you see when we got to four teams? Were you in the boat that said we will inevitably get bigger? That this that and did you think it would get there this quickly? No, I I assumed because that's what they continued to tell us over and over that the four team playoff would extend through the twelve year contract. And I think if they had their druthers, Ralph, that's what would happen. Nobody foresaw the consequences of the four team playoff having a deleterious effect on, you know, fan interest. You know, nobody saw fans getting bored with the same teams being in the playoff every year. Uh, Nobody could have predicted that, you know, but in that sense, the playoff has hurt competitive balance in the sport. You know, when, when the quarterbacks, when the projected starting quarterbacks at Clemson, Georgia, and Alabama are all from California that's you know it's a weird but b it's it's a consequence that nobody could have predicted but the impact of the playoff is so great that that that's what's happened 
and you know all the kids, you know all the national, all the top national recruits uh, have forsworn regional, by and large, forsworn regional ties to their schools. They want to go and play on the biggest stage, and and in that sense, you know Alabama and Clemson and Ohio State and Oklahoma. And, you know, and Georgia and Notre Dame, they just, they've been able to exploit that and everybody else is in line behind them. And, and it has exacerbated huge differences in, in talent. So, uh, that's why they, the commissioners felt like they had to expand, but I think they were perfectly fine with, uh, the, the idea, if not the actual outcome of a 14 playoff. So we're essentially this is all Nick Saban's fault. <laughs> it is all Nick Saban's fault, you know, which, you know, having grown up in Alabama, I'm I understand that half the state certainly ascribes every problem to Nick Saban or, you know, in the University of Alabama, but actually, you know, maybe we we are all Auburn now. Maybe that's the headline. <laughs> and the other half uh, ascribes every solution to every problem to to just just yeah. <laughs> to Nick Saban. Exactly. So um, uh, the other half is disappointed that he didn't run for senator instead of Tuberville. <laughs> you know, there is an interesting story here, probably, and maybe it'll be one of the things you you write, or maybe I would get to it about about just you know how this unique and uh, Alabama dynasty has in some ways, you know, impacted college football because it really is unlike anything we've ever seen. And I think we'd be naive to think that um, if it wasn't such a monster, maybe things would have would be different all across college football. It is it is something like we have never seen. So of course it could it could result in moves that we have never seen before. I, I don't think it's a direct correlation like because of Alabama we are here, but I, I think this type of dynasty uh, has to have, there has to be sort of a yin and a yang here, and I think there is definitely some some results to a dynasty like this, and I think some of the residual is now we have a 12-team playoff. I think you're right, and, and the other thought I have when I think about the Alabama dynasty is, is I just already feel sorry for the poor bastard who replaces Nick Saban, and <laughs> and I and I have already begun to contemplate the uh, steep fall off the pedestal that that fan base is going to endure because nothing lasts forever, as which I think is now the state motto of Nebraska. <laughs> well. Uh, you know, we talked about this last week on the show. You know, he's got a, a new contract extension that gets him through, uh, what was it, 2028. So we're talking about 77 years old. Quite frankly, Ivan, he may outlast both of us. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think Vegas would agree with you there. There is definitely a chance that when it, when it finally does end, neither of us will be the one chronicling it. Um so you have another project. Uh, again, uh, on three is the new place where we will find you in August and your work on college football and the work of, of, of others as, as the staff starts to be built there uh, for on3.com. 
but you've also been working on something else that is near and dear to your heart that is away from college football. And I'm not even going to, I'm just going to let you take it away, Ivan. Uh, You've been working on a book. Tell us about the book. Well, thanks for asking, Ralph. Uh, The name of the book is I Keep Trying to Catch His Eye. It's about our late son, Max, who died in February of 2015. Uh, And the book is about my relationship with him. Uh, It's about mental illness. Max ended his life. He was 21 years old, a junior in college. And it's about uh, grief and how I, and to a lesser extent, my uh, wife and daughters, I don't pretend to tell their story, uh, but uh, about how you learn to carry the burden of grief. You don't really get over it or get through it. You know, we don't, we like to say we don't deal in prepositions. You know, you just live with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, the purpose in writing the book was uh, not cathartic. I, I think that would be an enormous imposition on a reader to ask them to, to, you know, pay money so that you can then unload all your problems on them. Uh, it's more just to illustrate what we went through and to, to, uh, shine a light on it so that if it happens to you or to someone you love, you'll have an idea of, of what it's like. And I did that in part because one thing you learn pretty quickly is people are uh, awkward about death. They're really awkward about the death of a child. And if it's a, if it's a uh, child who ends his life, it, you know, that's the triple crown, you know, and uh, trust me, there was nobody more awkward about any of that than I was. Uh, so I had, uh, I understood when, you know, people didn't know what to say or said something really uh, uh, inappropriate or insensitive or said one thing and then pretended they had checked that box and, and, and they moved on, you know, and cause you know, we don't really move on. You know, we just kind of learn to, to carry the burden and, and uh, it doesn't mean that, you can't enjoy good things that happen. You know, I, we, I, I figured out pretty quickly that good things in our lives would continue to happen. And, and I felt like, well, if we don't enjoy them, then we are, you know, that doubles the loss. You know, we, we've not only lost Max, but now we've lost the capacity to enjoy, you know, our, our nieces and nephews weddings, for instance. Uh, which is a story I tell in the book. You know, uh, you know, I think we had four nieces and nephews get married in the in the first months after Max died. So that that's really the uh, the essence of the book. It's published pub date is October twenty sixth. It's published by Hachette. Uh, I think I would. Encourage, ask, plead that uh, if, to pre-order it, and of course, you know, one for whoever's listening, and and then one for everybody they've ever met. So, uh, <laughs> give give it, give me the title one more time to make sure people yeah. know it. Uh, I keep trying to catch his eye.
and it's uh, you can it's it's already available on wherever you buy your books. You know whether you buy them from uh, Amazon or Barnes and Noble or your independent bookstore uh, or eBooks. It, it, they're all there, and it's uh, it, it's uh, I think you know I, I'm now in the process of arranging signing events and, and speaking engagements and judging from the reaction, I, I think there's more interest in it than I thought there would be, frankly. So um, I, I hope the message resonates. I want to ask you one question about the book, and that is, sure. did, well, maybe maybe it's a one question with two parts. Um, did How did you come to the process of writing it? Was it a difficult decision to decide to write a book about your late son? Uh, it was more, I needed enough time to pass that I had perspective, but not so much time that memories began to fade. Uh, so uh, there was, uh, you know, last year, and then the pandemic sort of gave me a little more time as well. But last year, five years seemed to be uh, the right time. Uh, now, as I said, everybody grieves differently. Uh, and the way I grieved was I would wake up before dawn a lot of mornings and just open my laptop and and pour out everything that was in me into my laptop. And then I would, you know, that was my way of communicating and, and talking, thinking it out, getting it out. And I would close it. And I, so I had, and I did that regularly uh, for probably the first 18 months. And so I had a, if not, it wasn't really the template of a book, but it, it was sort of a, a, uh, a guide to what, I was thinking and what I went through and and what we went through. Uh, so I had a starting place. You know, I had sort of research for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I had a, you know, I, I had a, a lot in my laptop and that, that sort of guided me. And, and then after that, it was just a question of describing who Max was and, and he was, uh, you know, he was different. I mean, in, in, in some very funny ways. I mean, he had virtually no interest in sports, which I always thought it was proof that, you know, God had a sense of humor. That, mm-hmm. that he would, you know, give me a son that had no interest in sports. But he and I found things we liked together, and, and, uh, he was very funny and very dry, very quiet. Uh, but, uh, uh, I didn't want, uh, I didn't want his last act made, uh, by a mind that wasn't thinking correctly. I didn't want that act to define him. And th- that was another motivation is that, you know, he's so much more than, you know, than that decision. And, and the book allowed me to describe who he was. Okay, and the other part of that that I guess would be a somewhat two-part question is, did you, you're sharing your experience, um, but you also don't go through this alone because you have a wife and daughters. Daughter, two daughters. Two daughters, yeah. right. Um, 
did you need their buy-in? Even though you're 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 you say you don't try to necessarily um, assume or presume their experience, you're trying to share your experience. But did you need buy-in from them? to share your experience did they did you feel like you needed them to be comfortable with you doing this i did uh i didn't ask uh their permission to write it i wrote it and then had them read it okay uh and they uh you know they corrected my memory when it was faulty uh and and i said to them you know, you're more important to me than the book. If you don't want this to get out, then, you know, I'm, you know, that's cool. You know, no problems. Uh, but they, uh, you know, they understood that that's, uh, this is, this is what I do. This is how I communicate. So mm-hmm. I think they gave me some leeway there and, uh, and they served as, uh, not only factual editors, but, but tone and, and pointed out things to me that either I didn't remember or I hadn't thought of. And, you know, I reshaped a few, quite a few things based on their advice. Ivan Mizell will be, uh, uh, readable again as far as college football real soon, come August, on 3.com. He is the uh, senior writer in Grand Poobah. I'm going to keep using that one for the, <laughs> this new fledgling football site, which uh, comes also from the brains of the guys who brought us uh, rivals in 24-7 sports. So there's a lot of good people behind the scenes, and Ivan is at the is is the front-facing uh, leader of this new venture so that sounds like a good deal for everyone involved and of course um again just plug your book one last time for us ivan and when it's going to come out sure the name of it is i keep trying to catch his eye Uh, it will be published on october 26th by hachette Ivan, thanks so much, my friend, for coming on the show to talk playoff and history and what's to come in that and to share a little bit about your book Ralph, thank you. I so much look forward to uh, seeing you on Saturdays in the fall. It's been a while. Yeah, too long, too long. And now, three and out. First down. For this first down, we're going to jump into the mailbag. This comes from Christopher Johnson. A nice, succinct question. Given the inflated data stemming from the extra year grant, so super seniors, how should we best evaluate returning production? So I've thought about this a lot uh, and even wrote a story about super seniors back in February. We talked to Bill Conley of ESPN here on this podcast about returning production across college football and how that it is much higher than usual this season. Whereas in a usual year, few, if any, teams break 80% of returning production. This year, lots of teams are in the 70% area and several are above 80. So I've thought about this a lot. And at first, my thought about the super seniors and returning production, I figured things were set up for a few teams way more experienced than usual to have breakthrough seasons powered by all that 
extra experience and returning production. Those sleeper teams or surprise teams would likely come from the second and third tiers of conferences. Uh, could a team like Texas Tech or Illinois, maybe West Virginia or maybe Cal or Georgia Tech, take a big leap forward in 2020 by taking advantage of all that returning production and experience? The flip side of that is if everybody has returning production more than usual and has a more experienced roster than usual, does it sort of all even out? The teams least likely to be impacted by returning super seniors are the teams at the very top of the food chain, Alabama, Georgia, Clemson, Ohio State. They will tap into their next wave of blue chippers, and their rosters will look similar to what they usually would have. Though uh, Ohio State has, in particular, has a couple of returning linemen who decided to take an extra year of eligibility, and those will be a big help. So they won't necessarily have the volume of super seniors and returning production, but maybe with those elite teams, one or two really outstanding players could make a big difference on how their seasons go. But those are not the squads that are bringing back super seniors in bulk. So that's a long way of me saying that I doubt a national title or playoff race will be impacted greatly by all this returning production in college football. Because it's everywhere, especially in the G5 conferences, I think it negates the possible advantages any one particular team will have. There are always surprise teams in college football, those teams that start the season unranked and finish in the top 10 or 15. I believe when we survey the rankings in November, at least a couple of those surprise teams, whoever they are, will be able to trace their success directly back to the benefits of super seniors and an unusually experienced roster. But I don't think it's going to have a dramatic effect throughout all of college football because, as I said, I think to a certain degree, there's so much of it, things will sort of balance out. Second down, after a brief stay at Louisville, Luke McCaffrey has landed at Rice. The quarterback and brother of Christian McCaffrey transferred out of Nebraska in the winter, and right off the bat, Louisville seemed like an unusual spot for him to land. Malik Cunningham is a two-year starter with the Cardinals. Now, Cunningham is a good player, but you could see why Coach Scott Satterfield might want a little more competition and the possibility of another option at that position. Still, quarterbacks who transfer are generally looking for a place to play immediately. And it seems that McCaffrey discovered that was no guarantee at Louisville. Instead, he drops into Conference USA and will play for Coach Mike Bloomberg, who was the offensive coordinator at Stanford when Christian was a record-setting running back for the Cardinal. Third down. Last week, Bo Schembechler's son came forward with some truly horrible accusations about his father, ignoring warnings and complaints about the acts of sexual abuse committed by a Michigan team doctor. The doctor and Schembechler both died long ago. Schembechler is revered at Michigan, a Hall of Fame coach who was as synonymous with Michigan football as the winged helmets. 
Well, I don't think it's the most important question to be answered about this story. There is no doubt Michigan now faces a difficult challenge in some ways similar to what Penn State went through with Joe Paterno. I'm hesitant to draw a direct comparison between the two situations because there are vast differences between what happened at Michigan with this team doctor over decades and what played out at Penn State with Jerry Sandusky. But the question of how does a school honor this once great coach going forward is now on the table at Michigan, similar to the way it was at Penn State, and really in some ways still is at Penn State. I don't have answers here or an endorsement other than to say that I hope we are learning that we can celebrate the accomplishments of a football coach without deifying the man in real time. We don't know these people as well as we think. Maybe we shouldn't conflate success in a chosen field with high moral character in all aspects of a person's life. That is the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, John Radcliffe, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, just about anywhere you like to get your pods. You can also go to appodcast.com and get all the episodes you'd like there and access to whatever platform you'd like to get it on. If you have questions that you'd like me or my guests to answer, email them to aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you on all topics, college football, serious or silly. That's aptop25mailbag, the digits 25, at gmail.com. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening. And come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.